Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. everybody. This is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Leslie Eckford and Amanda Lambert. And we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart today, because as many of you know, I care for my 88-year-old dad and my kids who are 11 and just turning 15. Um, soul supporting as a single mom. And I got to tell you, being ripped between generations, going from 8 to 80 in the household, trying to feed one kid with uh, glucose or glu- gluten sensitivity. Other kid has blood sugar. My dad can't have salt. Here's a banana. Knock yourself out. Like that's <laughs> dinner in my household because it is just too much to deal with sometimes. And it's really important we've got these ladies on the show today because they have written a couple books. Um, Aging with Care, Your Guide to Hiring and Managing Caregivers. And then what's the first one? The one that came out in 2002, ladies? Beating the Senior Blues. Beating the Senior Blues. Wow. Boy, do we know that about our household. Um, Their books are available through Amazon, and their website, if you're following along at home today, is mindfulaging.com, like mindfulaging.com. And we're going to have the girls introduce each other to us. Um, Leslie Eckford, I'd love you to go first. My name is Leslie Eckford, and Sandra, I'm just so happy to be here with you today. Oh, it's so much fun. It is. We're going to have a ball. We're going to have a ball. How about you, Amanda? And I'm Amanda Lambert, and it's just a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Sandra. Yeah, I mean, how many of us are struggling with the same things every day? That's one of the things that I found when I looked out in the caregiver community, because I'm a caregiver. I'm also a veteran caregiver. My dad's a veteran. Um, We all struggle with the same things. I think the hardest thing that I have as a caregiver, and it reflects in my dad, is getting him to move. Uh, Well, that's one of our favorite topics. And honestly, I can say from my parents' point of view, both of my parents were lifetime exercisers. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, it's the big lottery with aging. What is it going to come up for you? We've known people who, you know, never smoked, never drank, and they're felled by a stroke. You just can't predict. And to some extent, that happened with my parents. Uh, my father was a marathon runner, and then he developed Parkinson's disease. Wow. And so, but even with that, I can say that the day before he died, and he was on hospice, one of his favorite last visits was from his physical therapist, who he had shared a lot of running stories with and it was one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was she came in and gave him a very light massage so movement up until your last dying breath we all have it in us yes I would echo that completely both of my parents are in their 90s you know declining they were both lifetime exercisers and I've had to really encourage them to take advantage of physical therapy which I think is a good sort of 
entry point into safe movement as people start to decline or they develop certain diseases. So I think that's one good way to kind of get people going is if you can convince people to try physical therapy. Otherwise, there are tons of really low impact chair exercises, videos, you know, if people are in senior living, there are classes to go to, there's the senior center. So there are lots of options. It's just convincing people to do it. And we, That's the problem. we just shared uh, an article that we heard yesterday on the radio, which is good. Your listeners are listening to radio and learning things. You know that thing about taking 10,000 steps for health? Oh, I got my Fitbit right here. Yep, okay. Yep. Well, that was created by Japanese marketers about 20 years ago. Oh, no. It had nothing to do with science. So a researcher decided to check it out, and they, they did it with older women. And guess what? The actual health benefits are many fewer than 10,000. It was like- It's 4,200. Oh my gosh! Yes, it, it actually increased longevity, forty-two hundred <laughs> steps per day. Yeah, per day, which is, I mean, obviously less than half of ten thousand. <laughs> yeah, sure. We were well, very. But that's, you know, I'm going to share something with you guys because I feel like I had for, for like 10 years, I feel like I had this, like what it must like to be elderly and, and, you know, kind of confined to a location uh, because I was in technology, you know, <laughs> you're chained to a computer, you're stuck in a chair, you can't get up and move, the bathroom's upstairs, things are running. And for almost a decade, I sat at a computer and didn't move anything more than a few fingers. Mm -hmm. And what I found when I, when I left my late thirties and early forties and I left technology after 10 years, I couldn't go up and down the stairs easily. I couldn't get up and down the chairs. I was walkily when I walked, everything was tight and stiff. And, you know, it reminded me of my dad, you know, who sits and watches like Hogan's Heroes reruns all the time. And when I started on my own fitness journey because of some health issues, I started walking, just the simple mm -hmm. prospect of walking and my hips eased up, my knees, my legs strengthened. You don't realize how much everything gets tight and saggy and, and no power when you sit all the time. And you were so smart to get moving, but there. think of all the people who don't have a daughter like you who are elder and are sitting and they there is a psychological impact of just sitting there and your mind gets slushy too yeah and there was a study that was done that looked at why people seem to decline after they physically decline after they go to assisted living they found that one of the reasons is because when people go to assisted living they're no longer taking care of the yard. They're not doing their housekeeping. They're not doing their cooking. So they're not, they're not engaging in those everyday movements that we just take for granted. I mean, I'm sure there were other factors as well, but my parents are in independent senior living, but we have them in an apartment that is far away from the elevator as you can get. Yep. Oh, so for I'm every meal, they have to walk. <laughs> 
see, and I do all these little tricks. I'm so glad my dad would never listen to my shows. <laughs> I take the remote control and, you know, where oh. his lazy boy is over by the TV is pretty far from where the refrigerator is. So I like to kind of sneak by his lazy boy. I pick up the remote as I go and I put it in front of the fridge. Then he'll text me because he's really good at technology. <laughs> he'll text me, Sam, where's the remote control? And I'm like, I think you left it by the fridge. He'll get up out of his chair. He'll walk down. But, you know, when you were talking about that thing about gardening and, and um, you know, the things that we do before we go into care, um, certain care facilities, it made me think about the air shows with my dad. My dad's um, retired military. He's retired Navy. Um, when the air shows are in town, he will walk. He will walk from that parking lot to the P-38 static display. He's out to the flight line. Hey, there's the Blue Angels. But when we don't have those interests, mm -hmm. it's like everything just kind of folds in on itself. He becomes like the grandpa black hole. Yeah. And nothing changed in that other than what he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it just shows so how our mind can engineer things. And, mm -hmm. you know, like even now for you guys, when you have a bad day, like, you know how sometimes you have the blues and you, you're like, you don't want to get off the couch and there's nothing to watch on TV and you just kind of sit there. You can feel everything slow down. Mm -hmm. And like, you might get a text on your phone and be like, Oh, what's that? Versus I mean, it's, it's, to, it's to everyone, don't you think? Not just aging. I think it just becomes more pronounced as we age. Yeah. And I, it, that sort of reminds me of, we used to do uh, different groups. And I remember telling groups of seniors that studies had shown that when you're reading and sitting on a couch, you're burning more calories than if you are sitting on a couch watching television. Wow. Something about your metabolism slows that much further down. Well, and probably because you're like a zombie. I mean, if you have, yeah. I see my kids in front of the TV, they're like, yeah, they, they barely blink. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like passive versus active. Yeah. But Sandra, I think you got to a really good point, which is the heart of what you were talking about is motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what can motivate older people to move? And I think that's a really critical question. I mean, on Memorial Day, they had this amazing um, uh, World War II memorabilia exhibit where my parents lived. And, you know, my dad made a beeline down there because he's a World War II vet. But normally he doesn't go to a single activity. Right. You know, I can't get him to do anything. My mom is different, but it's hard to get him to do anything. But he was at that exhibit. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It is. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like any of us, you know, if, if we have a wedding to go to, we hit the gym more, <laughs> we eat a lot less. Um, you know, it's, it's about connecting to our behaviors, to that motivation, to that desired outcome. And I think that's one of the hardest things. Cause my dad's favorite thing to say is I don't need any new underpants. I'll be dead next oh. year. Oh, oh, I don't need any new socks. I'll be dead soon. You, you've heard it. Oh yeah. I, I heard it right out of my dad's more. mouth. <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? Where I say, I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, you're not going to be dead in the next five minutes. Let's go to Sam's Club and get you some underpants. Like, right. There, there's something to be said for living in the moment and an existential viewpoint. But my 97-year-old mother-in-law 
well, when my husband calls and says, hey, mom, how are you doing? She'll say, well, I'm still here. You know, it does, it's a change. We know that it's a change. And it, it is sort of a joke, but it also means something. And it's not that we think, oh, you need to go to psychoanalysis for right. 10 years. But it, it, it does beg a question and, and it does, you know, it, it is an opportunity in a way for to engage in a discussion, like you said, you know, and, and it may only be like, well, but hey, we're going to Walmart anyway to get you a new pair, you know. Right. So. Well, and it's, you know, there's things like, you know, when they say that, like my grandpa, and this is a terrible story, I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, he was dying from the time I was born. He had a heart attack when he was 1930, when he was born in like 1907. He was 39 when he had his heart attack. I think he was probably 55 when he had me, you know, as a granddaughter. And I would sit with my brothers and sisters at the Thanksgiving or the Easter table, whatever it is. And my grandfather would get up every year and talk about how grateful he is to live another year. And then he'd get all, you know, all emotional because it might be his last and when I was really little, like five or six, I was scared. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so scary. By the time I was 25, like we would just be like giggling and giggling. And then when my grandfather did pass away, he was 94. I called my older sister and she's like, really? Like, <laughs> and not to be unkind to him, but I think that as a culture, we don't talk about death and aging. I see it in this generation. You know, when I was growing up, my mom would say, oh, yeah, well, at the, I go to the Irish wakes, they'd pick up the body and dance with it. And, you know, we had been to my other grandma's funeral. Like, my Uncle Eric died. My brother tried to prove to us that they sewed his lip shut after death. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I know. We just, I'm, <laughs> but the point was that death was a part of life. And maybe because we were from a farming community, you knew that animals died, you slaughtered to eat them. You know, we had families who died at various ages. But now we live in an environment where aging is, everything's anti aging, anti aging cream, right. anti aging this. So it's almost like we're, we're denying what's, What's coming? Yeah. And what's coming. So we're not, you know, I bring up these things, you know, cause they're, they're fun and they're funny, but they illustrate a bigger, a bigger issue is we don't talk about death. We don't talk about aging. We talk about anti. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Preventative. Preventative. Well, we're all yeah. going to get there someday. Right. And, so, it, and it, it speaks to our need for controlling everything. Mm -hmm. We want to have the final say and the, group of us, Amanda and I included, of baby boomers aging, we don't take kindly to someone trying to tell us how our aging is going to be. But you bring up a really good point because there are just going to be some unfortunate realities for people. Um, aging is associated with decline for many people. Yes, we're seeing more and more superstar agers but just think of the pressure, the competition that people are going to feel to be even more healthy or to feel less of themselves if they don't live up to that. Well, and we have the technology now to keep people alive. You know, right. when they're in a very declined mm -hmm. state, we can keep them alive. Right. If that's what they want. Yeah. And we do it. 
Oh, sure. I yeah. mean, the battlefield injury rates. I mean, we look at our, you know, our military, many of our young men and women would have died in prior wars and we're able to keep them alive. And then we're somehow wondering about not all of the suicide rates, but some of the suicide rates because of, you it's know, huge. It's, it's difficult. I mean, there's, these are big dilemmas and that's why it's so great to have you guys on my show and talking about some of this stuff, because maybe somebody listening will go home and think, you know, what I see on TV or, you know, sometimes these medical advances, like, what do I really want? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it, what is important to me? Cause I, you know, I love Grace and Frankie, you know, I watched that mm -hmm. on Netflix and, you know, Jane Fonda, I mean, she rocks it. I don't care. She you know, you want to go back to Hanoi Jane and pick on her. Go ahead. <laughs> My dad calls her Hanoi Jane. Oh, you're watching that Hanoi Jane thing again. <laughs> but you look at her and she's beautiful, but she's like a Beverly Hills science project. You know, there's not a nip, tuck. I mean, I know she works hard and she probably works out like that, but she probably also has half a million dollars, you know, to put towards her body adjustments. Right. And... and and, and I think she is pretty open about that. Yes. But I think you bring up a really good point that Amanda and I had been talking about earlier, which is, you know, people do have some choices to make. But what we see in families between the adult children and uh, their elders is that people don't necessarily talk in advance until there's a big crisis. Right. Well, what would you want us to do, Dad? Would you want us to... Um, have them do a surgery when you have already started to show signs of dementia. And so what we're really encouraging people to do is to have these talks now. When, you know, after the big holiday meal and everybody's sitting around and saying, you know, could we talk for a minute and just bring up one of these issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something that it, as part of my business, and I do a lot of consultations, it's the first thing I recommend. Sit down and talk about what it is that you want. What are your end-of-life wishes? And, you know, each state is different in terms of mm -hmm. advanced directives, but right. typically it's, it's not that complicated. It's just a matter of people being willing to sit down and discuss their, their wishes. Well, and I think, that, I think most people are open to that and, and, and will do it. Um, but it's just something like Leslie said, if you wait until there's a crisis or if you wait until somebody's not able to respond, yeah. then what? Right. Yeah, but you know what you're talking about and seeing people in denial. My parents, when they were in their 70s, they, <laughs> they had their first grandchild, thanks to me and my husband. And they, my mother was like, ooh, is, is he going to call me grandma? <laughs> and I'm like, mom, you're, you're in your 70s. It's kind of a good thing. But yeah. they were really age deniers. They didn't want to talk mm. about that. And I never had a conversation with them in advance about that, other than that I knew they didn't want machines mm -hmm. to save their life. That was, that was about the extent of it. But I think it's like the question begs to, you know, and I have a big family of girls who yak a lot and my dad's so excited. One of them gets paid to talk. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the questions that comes up is who brings it up? You know, like in my family, it's easy. I'm the big mouth. I'm the one that's like, well, dad, you know, what do you want? You want to be cremated? You want to be put in a box? You want to, want me to dump you in Canandaigua Lake? Like what's... <laughs> And I, but I will say the first time I brought it up, like when my mom was diagnosed stage four breast cancer, this was about mm, maybe nine, 10 years ago. 
I had to ask her some things and I will say that it wasn't pleasant. Even for me, somebody who's a trained professional interviewer, I went to Northwestern, I went to journalism school, I can get the best stories out of anybody, but it was my mom. You know, and you don't want to hurt her feelings. You don't want to make her uncomfortable. But, you know, and when I, when I first brought up the conversation to her, you know, she, she was, she had just, you know, you're stuck having chemo. So you're kind of stuck for a couple hours in a place. Good place to have these conversations, by the way, because nobody can go anywhere. It's like being in a car. Um, But it gets easier. I guess that's if one thing I wanted people to know when you bring this up, and that's why I brought up the funny stories about, you know, people talking about death in our family, because it wasn't a taboo topic, mm-hmm. I think it was a little easier, but it might go bad the first time you bring it up. Like, don't have a high expectation. Don't load too much onto the other person or on yourself. Just throw it out there. See if it lands and then throw it out again, because eventually it'll land. But it's okay to feel weird and creepy and frightened. Mm-hmm when you have these conversations, because I was terrified. I, you know, I remember my mom laying on her bed in the back of our, our house on Canandaigua Lake. And, you know, she was just so sick. And I'm like, you know, like, mom, well, what do you want with some of these things? What can I do? And it was that first acknowledgement of that. She will not be here next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, well, and that's, yeah, because you're talking about death. Yeah. You know, and I think one thing that's really helped is I think almost I think almost all healthcare settings now require it. I mean, if you end up in the hospital, they want to see that advanced directive. So it can come up in that setting as well, or home health. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Even home health agencies now, they want to see an advanced directive. They want to see end-of-life wishes. So, But I think you get to another really tricky situation for us as adult children is that our parents are the adult in the room. And yet, part of what we're trying to say when we're directing these conversations with them is we are taking over that position. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this kind of ties in with the sandwich generation. I have a, a couple of teenagers, and they are working so hard, very appropriately, to push me away. And And my son recently told me very point blank, stop telling me what to do. I am now the expert on how to live my life. Yeah, but I'm still your mother. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it was so hard. And yet it was also really wonderful to hear him say that. But I remember with my father, my father was a Marine Mm -hmm. and he was the boss in the room. Yep which meant he was the top adult in the room. And to have to say some difficult things Mm -hmm. to him was some of the hardest conversation I ever had with anyone. I bet. Yeah, I think that's so true. And there comes that point in your relationship with your parents. Both my parents are in their 90s. I'm always offering to help. I'm a geriatric care manager. That's what I do. (laughs) And they tell me, we are independent. We don't want your help. But then I get the phone call. We need your help. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, okay. I haven't quite figured out when it is you need my help and when you don't, but you know, you have to, you have to go with it. You just have to kind of be flexible, 
go with the flow, realize that they are in a position they've never been in before. Right. Assess in positions we've never been in before. See, that's, that to me, I think is the, one of the best things that, that you guys have said, because as it transitions, it's like a pendulum swing, you know, and the TVs and movies, it's like, oh, I'm the daughter. My mom is sick. Now my mom's sick. I'm the adult and she's fine with that. And it seems to just all work out in like 30 minutes. Right. It's not like that in real life. There's that pendulum swing of, cause I look at my dad sometimes and he's fiercely independent over here and then it'll swing over. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll give a perfect example. When he was living with me, he's telling me he's got, he needs a hip transplant or a hip replacement. So I call my friend who's an orthopedic surgeon. She's like, yeah, I have him stand this way. I have him do this in the kitchen. No, no, he's fine because he sits too much. So we go for six months. And if I give him an aspirin, then he's a little baby. And then if I don't give him the aspirin, he's in pain. And he's like, oh, it's hell to get old. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> So it goes back and forth in this pendulum swing. Then he goes home to to Buffalo with my family. My brother, my older brother, drives him to all the different, 15 different x-rays, two different doctors. Well, you got to lose 20 pounds and walk more. Uh, Right. And so, but this was a year process, but this is normal. Like this is what happens. You know, you don't, you're not dealing with someone who is fully independent but fully dependent. You know, you're, you're somewhere in there. And we have, like on days where we do a lot, his mental acuity is much better. Mm-hmm. If he has sit and watched Hogan's Heroes and Matlock all day, he can't remember what he ate for lunch. Right. And I think that pendulum swing back and forth is something that's not really spoken about. Right. One of our favorite things is seeing the advertisements for senior living and you see this beautiful older woman and she's gazing lovingly at the caregiver and they're just such good friends. But really, if we saw the real picture, she's telling the caregiver to get the hell out of the room and leave me alone. And, you know, it's one of the things that I used to talk in groups with seniors about is is there a way for you to find a a middle ground where you can maintain your adult self and accept help? Mm -hmm. Because it would be easier for everybody. The energy that people put into resisting is... Well, and I think there's something that happens to people's brains, and it may happen to our brains. (laughs) Uh, Soon. (laughs) It could happen to our brains too. There's this odd sort of denial that people are in decline. Like a perfect example would be my dad, who's 95. I don't know how he gets up and walks every day, but he does. He looks like he's about to fall over. He uses a walking stick and he comes back to his apartment and he says to me, yeah, there's so many people here who just can't get around very well. (laughs) And I look at him and go, wow, I yeah, you're one of those people, but he oh. just doesn't see it. He well, I try to get it. my dad to go to the senior center down the street. It's literally a mile away. And you know what he tells me? He They're goes, well, the Wi-Fi is pretty good, but everybody there is old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're old. Like, but, but, you know, I think, you know, he did tell me one time, he looks at his driver's license every now and then, and he can't believe it. You know, he sees his date of birth. And it's there, you know, or his military ID card, you know, he sees it there, 
but he can't believe it. Like he cannot believe he is over 85 years old. He just can't, it, there's no, I don't know. Yeah. And you know, when Leslie was talking about how to have these conversations, we, you know, we talk a lot about this in our book, but I think if, if you come at any of these difficult conversations, whether they're about end of life or whether they're about a decline that you see happening, it, I mean, it really has to be done with respect. Mm -hmm. It has to be done with respect and, and not with control and not with pressure. That can be really hard, especially if this is the 15th time you've had the conversation oh, yeah. and you're not getting anywhere. But still, I think that's how you're going to have the best success because people want to have control. They want to be empowered to make their own decisions. And all you can do is try to help that process along. But at the end of the day, people make their own decisions. Right. And we see that all the time. It, you know, many people think, oh, well, if mom or dad are, are doing something very unsafe, then we're just going to pull out the big guns and get some legal backup. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck with that because that can be a very long, complicated, and destructive to the family process. We've yep. seen that lots of times. Yes. And, and even you can put mom or dad in the uh, nursing home or assisted living, and that does not a guarantee that they're and going it doesn't to be solve safer. The problem. Yeah, right. Doesn't solve the problem. This is one of the things that I, you know, I'm not going to name my family members, but you know, I come from a big family. And when my mom was dying, some of my family members had good relationships with my mom. They would call her regularly. So they weren't surprised at declines. They would visit regularly or at least, you know, get on the iPhone and Skype. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of these problems really exist when I look at my own family and, and the whole grieving process, the whole long-term decline, you know, you have a lot of time to sit and look at everything. When you don't have a relationship with your aging parent, there's no trust. You know, there's a reason why, you know, my dad lives with me eight months, nine months out of the year. When he has a question, he's going to run it by me first. Not, I have sisters who are nurses. You're going to ask me because I have the relationship with you. And right. don't you think that some of these big problems, if you're not, it's, if you don't develop a relationship with your parent at any point in their lifetime, don't expect them to be compliant with you in aging. Mm -hmm. I Well, and I think also parent-child relationships can be so complicated. We can all go back to our own adolescence and what it was like for us to separate from those same parents. And, and we have, I mean, I think what you're saying is very true. But I also think the nature of relationships in general, sometimes, I've, I've seen some beautiful rapprochement, uh, return to connection at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and I've seen the opposite. <laughs> yeah, sure. I work because I deal with so much family conflict. Yeah. And, you know, nine times out of 10, the one sibling that is causing the conflict is the one that never sees mom or dad. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Hands down, hands down. You know, I saw it in my own, you know, relationships and, um, it's just really tough. They're always the sticky wicket. They're always the one that are going to challenge everything. And they're also the one usually that's in the most denial. Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and it can get, 
messy and it yep. can get really difficult. And I, I've had families that have had to go to mediation, you oh, know, really? with, with a mediator, you know, to work things out because everybody's fighting. And, you know, you hope it doesn't get to that. And as Leslie says, there are lots of families, you know, where this isn't an issue. But again, if you can just get back to planning and talking about these things before the decline happens. And before the, the drama happens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because that's the thing, like, you know, you, when you look at family dynamics, you know, when you've got a bunch of girls and a bunch of boys in a family, somebody's going to disagree <laughs> on mm-hmm. a good day. You know, two of my sister, my older sister and I will fight on a good day, like about anything. It could, it wouldn't even matter. The wind could blow and I'd say it's blowing. No, it's not, you know, but these things get amplified was what you're talking about. The dynamics that exist in the family unit that have carried over from childhood into adulthood and kind of cemented in certain places. When you add on the fuel of a parent that's dying or needs significant medical decisions made, Do you find, because I saw it was more childhood family dynamics playing out sometimes Mm -hmm. between siblings, then hello, the point is, you know, mom or dad over here. Right. That's that fuel, that rocket fuel that just makes everything so much harder. Yeah. and, And drama typically arises from crisis. So if you've already had these discussions, I mean, I work with families where I'm just shocked to find out that the, the adult children don't even know what insurance their parents have. They don't know anything about their finances. They don't know if they have long-term care insurance. They don't know, they don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really, I mean, and it's important to sit down and have those discussions because at some point somebody is going to have to step in and make decisions. Right. If you can't access any of that information, how can you make wise decisions? You can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that gets to another part of family dynamics and um, privacy mm-hmm. that, oh, well, you, you don't need to know what, you know, your father and I have in the bank. <laughs> right. Well, it, that is a huge issue for adult children. And, and it, it, you know, you feel like you're going over a boundary to ask that it's like asking what your sex life is like, mom. No, it's, I need to know where you have money, what you owe, what, mm-hmm. uh, what is the picture like? And that is just something that people, again, just yeah, talk and, early. You know, I feel like I'm really fortunate because my dad came to me and said, you know, I'm starting to lose it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can't manage my finances. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to turn it over to you. And I said, well, dad, we, you can do that, but we have to put some things in place. I can't just do that. Right. Right. So we put everything in a trust. You know, we hired an attorney, we put everything in a trust with my sister and I as co-trustees and we're co-trustees at the moment. So in other words, we could take over tomorrow. Right. But we won't unless one or both of my parents ask us to. So I was really fortunate that he could see that he was starting to lose his grip and asked me to come up with a solution. And I was able to do that. But I think that's pretty rare. I think it's, I I went through the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, we talk about relationships with money. You know, that's really what we're talking about. And, you know, it's not really a family issue. It's a personal relationship with money. And some cultures and families, money is, it's rude to speak of money. Exactly. You know, you come from a real estate family. The first thing they'll ask you is, oh, what'd you pay for your house? (laughs) And it's, 
you know, runs that big gamut. But then there's also fear. You know, I remember reading an article, and I think it was in Forbes, I'm not sure, but they said like 93% of seniors are more afraid of running out of money in their retirement than dying. I mean, what does that say? And they have good reason to have those fears. They certainly do. The cost of aging is enormous. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So let's talk about caregivers because I like the this this guide to managing hiring and managing caregivers because I can only imagine you know somebody's taking care of mom and oh I could just see somebody going in my childhood home with my both my parents and just siblings flying all over the map going they're gonna steal the silverware they're gonna you know leave my mom on the couch for hours like you know because you just hear all we hear in the media is these horror stories. And when I took my dad into my house um, as a caregiver, I was scared because I had heard how awful it could be. Now, it turned out to be great. You know, I have my days. Don't get me wrong. If you caught me on one of those days, you might get a different story. But by and large, it's, you know, it's worked out pretty well. But what's the reality of hiring a caregiver? Like, what does that look like? Well, Leslie, why don't you take that question? Because <laughs> you have a story to tell. I, unfortunately, I, I had it looked like the perfect situation. Um, I was, my father had had a surgery. He had a home health nurse who we all just loved. And my parents were starting to show signs that they needed help around the clock. And this nurse recommended a caregiver to me. And, um, And then a doctor who knew the caregiver also said, oh, that caregiver is really wonderful. And with those references, I, it didn't even occur to me to run a background check. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me to get any other references. And that was a huge mistake. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail. You can read the book to <laughs> read more about that. But uh, needless to say, uh, my parents lost a lot of money and belongings, jewelry, mm-hmm. and household items. And we were very lucky uh, that we were able to catch this person, and we went to the police. And I have to admire my parents, who are both very, very private people. But when they heard that we could potentially press charges, they said, absolutely, this person has done something that is a crime. And violated trust. Absolutely. And this, and I will tell you, this was a good caregiver. Um, air quotes around that. Right. Um, well, but how would you know? <laughs> like, that's why it's so important that we, we have these shows, we have these conversations, you write these books, because it can happen to anybody. And, and Amanda and I want to emphasize, we love caregivers. Sure worked with so many great caregivers. And since then, my parents have had fantastic, very trustworthy, loyal people who would never, ever uh, take advantage of them. Well, it's that one person that does that affects so many people. And then it's on the news and, you know, people talk about it. And, you know, so you're right. It's like a 90, you know, maybe 90, 10 proposition for every 90. Maybe you have 10 that are, you know, on the bubble and then one is awful, but we only hear about the awful ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I would add to that, you know, we both live this and deal with it every day. 
people think that their problems will be solved, you know, when they go through an agency and get caregivers in the home and they get somebody they really love. Well, if you get somebody you really love, the chances are they're probably going to move on. Even though you have hired caregivers in the home, it, you still have to manage it. Mm -hmm. um, Leslie's a long distance care manager. Yeah. So basically. I live in one state and my parents are in another state. I make as many trips as I can. Um, and you may have gathered I'm a, <clears throat> a pretty controlling person myself. <laughs> so um, I have to know what's going on at all times. And since that experience, I have learned about background checks and references and uh, remote cameras. Mm -hmm. I have remote cameras in my mother's home. I have outdoor cameras. I have security lights. Um, I have all kinds of ways of checking. And, and we go through that pretty thoroughly in our book, but we would just really encourage people take it one step at a time, learn how to set it up, mm -hmm. and you'll probably have a really good experience. Mm -hmm. Well, it gives you peace of mind, mm -hmm. you know, because some of it is for them, for their protection, but let's be honest, some of it is for you, for your peace of mind. You know, when you're responsible for um, a parent and you're responsible for their health and their finances and their pills and their nutrition and their exercise, it's a lot of work. And yeah. so anything you can do, you know, one of the things I'm really blessed by is, you know, my dad's a yacker and he has funny stories to tell. So a lot of my friends enjoy him. So I have one friend, my friend's husband, John, he'll take my dad over to Edwards Air Force Base, you know, when there's something cool going on. Or my friend Tracy will come and just sit with them for an hour. But I, when people ask me, how can we help you? I had to learn how to say, it would be great if you would. Yes. Mm -hmm. That one was, I think, the hardest for me because I'm kind of a can-do girl. And, oh, yeah, I can yeah. do it. I can take three dogs. Sure, I can take four dogs. I can have two kids. You know, and boing, 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 boing. So to say, to be specific as a caregiver for what will help you yes, doesn't mean you're deficient. And if you don't do it, like one of my friends, Carrie, she came over one day and she's like, I'm just going to help you with the laundry. She didn't even ask. She's like, I know between your boys and your dad and you're teaching gym and going to work, everything, your laundry's got to be piled up. So we made some tea, we folded for a couple hours, we laughed and we got it done. And it was the greatest gift. And what she said to me was, thank you for finally letting me help you. Because mm -hmm. she had been asking for, I don't know how long, you know, because I'm just in my own little go, go, go world. And I didn't realize how important it was for her to help me. And I said, I asked her why it was important. And she says, you know, Stan, my mom died when I was 20, 